And then the third time I drank was at a party and I was actually slipped something in my drink and the older brother at the party who bought our, our alcohol, he, him and his friends ended up raping me. So I was only 15 and, um, I was, I was 14 or 15. I was around, I was my freshman year. And, you know, after that, um, my drinking just, it just exploded. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast. I speak with those who have taken the darkest times of their lives and share their stories to educate, motivate, and inspire others to be their best self. That's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. I'm your host, Jason. I accepted that I'm powerless against alcohol, and in my sobriety, I've confronted my unaddressed childhood and adult trauma, as well as severe anxiety and depression. If this is your first time listening, please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and please subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. All the links are in the description. We couldn't do knocking doors down without 5150 LTM. If you want some cool hats, shirts, sweatshirts, maybe some sweatpants, I've got my favorite camouflage 5150 sweatpants on right now. Head on over to the store and check it out by going to 5150LTM.com or click the link in the podcast description. Then at checkout, use the code KDD20. That's KDD20 and get 20% off your entire order. Kelsey Egason, thank you for joining me on Knocking Doors Down. What is going on, my friend? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. A busy mom and uh, all the recovery work you do, suicide prevention, mental health education. We're doing this. You're in the car. So, uh, you know, those those transient moments there, so to speak. Um, so I really appreciate it. It's good to connect with you in this way. We've only been talking about it for, I don't know, a couple of years now. So. <laughs> But uh, anyway, you know, one of the areas I really want to jump off in, of course, we'll touch, uh, you know, on your story throughout, uh, you know, in recovery for addiction yourself and also, you know, uh, had your suicide uh, issues and um, boy, but now as a mom and me as a parent, this is the stuff that you and I really connect on is where do you think we really got to go with educating our our children, our youth, our fellow parents, you know, moms out there getting themselves educated. Yeah, I think, you know, I think for when it comes to mental health and suicide, I think always the first place to start is the stigma, right? Like there's just still in my work in the community and just, you know, coming in contact with families who still haven't maybe necessarily been touched by mental health or suicide and an addiction. Um, they, they, there's that stigma. It's like, well, what will people think or, or how, how do I begin to ask for help? And I think what's really important for people to know, um, is how much courage it actually takes to ask for help and step out for either a family member or yourself. And I think that's really like overlooked. It's, it's like, um, it's just, it's just something that like when people reach out to me, especially on the internet, um, I, I always commend their courage because, um, you know, there's learned behaviors that are passed down through the generations or there's ideas, attitudes and emotions that people have towards mental health or addiction or suicide. And to overcome like those ideas, attitudes and emotions and take that courage and say, you know what, I'm going to throw all that to the side and I'm going to do what I think is right. Like it, it just takes an incredible amount of courage. So I think one of the like seeds that I really hope to plant in the community is number one, the courage and number two, um, that, that stigma is real. Um, but what's, what's more powerful than the stigma is the results that come from like pushing back against that and, and seeking the help. So it starts with very, I think very small, 
moments that are huge in the grand scheme of things and behind those moments, having the right people behind you, encouraging you and strengthening you. Um, Cause I know like with what I've seen in my family is I came from a family that it was like mental health was a dirty word and Mm. struggling with mental health meant you were weak. And now I have a 12 year old and I have created such an environment in my home where mental health is so, so normalized in a way to talk about. Like, it's just normal for us to talk about our emotions and talk about what we're going through, where even like my 12 year old has already come to me and been like, hey, mom, um, especially, you know, COVID, the COVID lockdowns. He was like, hey, mom, I'm really struggling through this. Like, I need help. And to watch a, you know, 11, 12 year old come out of his room and sit us down and say that I was like, this is, this is what it's all about. Right. Like that seed of courage and him setting aside what everyone thought to be able to do that. I mean, that's where it starts. Yeah. Well, and you bring up the important that, you know, like with stigma, I think sometimes maybe people don't understand when the stigma is already there. Those of us that have suffered or are suffering, we're already in a shame spiral of sorts anyways. And so when you do that, you're already shaming on top of shame. And so the prevention of, you know, like, yeah, the the days that put some dirt on it, that shit don't work. Can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like, yeah, (laughs) no, it's. So if, if, if this person is already hurting, already feeling shame, guilt, remorse, whatever the, the reasons are, and you're adding on top of it, right. they're not going to open up to you. You're never going to get genuine connectivity from them. You're never going to get real vulnerable situations where you, the person may be listening or them gets someone on the other end that knows that they care without judgment. And that is the hardest thing. And we struggle with it in this society so so much, uh, you know, as individuals, as a culture, uh, you know, we've got so many shitty broken ways uh, that are going on right now from this is fulfillment to whatever it is. And so I really am glad to hear that you were able to do that. That's um, in your own household because we have to, right? We, it, You know, if our side of the street's not clean, how can we ask anyone else to clean theirs up? Right. And I think too, like what words stuck out to me when you were just saying is expectations like society, culture, school, everything our young people live in and go through. And even adults, like there's these expectations that are put on us. And I think we put these expectations on ourselves and like how it's supposed to be or what it should look like. And Yeah, that we no matter like even the healthiest people carry some sort of shame because we're not perfect. So we we're always we always have mistakes. We're always learning. We're always growing. So to to in your own house, like also pile that shame on top. I mean, you really do like dig your, you know, dig your own grave, um, so to speak. So I think just, you know my recovery this year has been heavy on like expectations, you know, Mm. what are your, like, are, do you have healthy expectations? What, what, like, you know, are you loving with, with expecting something in return? Are you doing it because that's who you are at your core, you know, or the expectation of like, Oh, I'm in this, you know, especially for my son who has social anxiety. It's like, I'm in this situation and I, I'm expecting that I should feel good about this, but maybe your expectation needs to be that it's incredible that you're even out trying, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, we set the, we don't realize it, but we set all these expectations of should, could, and would. And sometimes I think we need to just throw those out and say like, I'm doing the best that I can. And that's good. That's good enough in this moment. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? 
Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Yeah, well, it, it's hard to, and I go through this in my household, the uh, helping with the future tripping. Yeah, yeah, uh, telling the story like 10 years down the road. I know in my addiction, I struggled with it. I'm sure that you did, too. Oh, yeah. so, so it's some of those warning red flags as a parent that, that, you know, being open. I officially, as of this recording today, have two teenagers. So, you know, oh. r- really talking with them about that, breaking the future trip and and letting them be in the moment, you know, the, oh, starting this new class. And what if no one likes me? And what if you know, it's like, be in the moment. Look for the the cool things that could happen. Maybe the connections that you do make, right. and, you know, and keep in perspective your reasoning for being in class or th- participating in this. And it's it's hard as an adult, let alone to help your kids yeah. with those tools. So no, it's so true. I always say that too. Like as adults, we struggle to carry a forty hour work week, and our kids go to school for forty hours a week. Like. Yeah, they're going to have some level of like anxiety or depression or whatever, you know. So I think just, yeah, like really planting those seeds of like, it's okay, you know, and, and we all need help. And I think that's something too, as a parent, I've learned like um, showing my kids that like, yeah, I, str- I struggle too, you know, and I'm working through this too. And I think that is one of the gifts of recovery. Like I hear my son say words like amends, you know, I made Mm. amends or, um, I'm cleaning my side of the street. It's, he even does it with his teachers. And I, I just like the gift of cleaning my side of the street and living that out. It's so funny. Like I'll be driving my son to school and he'll be like, mom, um, Will you not? He asked me if I was a psychologist, first of all, because like you're always on the phone helping women work through things. And I was like, I'm not a psychologist. I'm <laughs> just sober. But he always jokes like, Mom, today when you pick me up, will you um, will you not do an AA call on the drive home? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I will. I promise. Uh, yeah, it's a challenge we have, uh, like, again, our own balance, like, okay, they they just want our time at that particular moment, you know, but, but, but I guarantee when he gets older or what, you know, our children get older, they're going to pick up some of these nuggets. They're going to carry it forward in a positive way. So true. Well, let's jump back. You, You know, you said some, some very interesting things. Let's talk about you. I mean, you know, you came from an affluent area. Um, you know, gosh, your, your story. I mean, geez, the first time you shared with me, I I remember being in tears, but you know, a cheerleader, all these different things. And from the outward stuff looked like it was good, but it just wasn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, I grew, yeah, I grew up, um, in a, in a nice part of Fresno, North Fresno. Um, you know, my, my parents, my dad was an engineer and my, my mom worked with him and, Um, you know, I think for me, one of the things I struggled with at a really young age was perfectionism. And, you know, I was, I was taught, um, really because of the area I grew up in very much. The culture was like, um, you know, how you present yourself matters. What people think of you is really important. And, um, so I just, you know, learned at a young age, um, in the culture that, um, you know, it's, it's better It is if you look good, no one will ask you how you feel, you know, if you present nicely on the outside, people won't question you. And, 
Um, you know, there was a lot of drinking in my house growing up and I was allowed to drink and my alcoholism came out at a very young age. Um, so, you know, I think it was just, you know, being an athlete too, like I, a lot of my, you know, pride and ego was, was, was built there. Mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, the, the better you did, the more, um, praise you got and, um, I mean, I, I loved my sports. It, it definitely made, made me a really strong driven person. Um, but I always say, you know, the, the more, sometimes the more put together on the outside, the darker the inside is. And, um, yeah, so I just, I started struggling with drinking and, Drinking turned into drinking in my home, turned into drinking with my friends. And um, yeah, it just things spiraled really fast. Yeah. At that point, it's, it's easy to get off to the races when, when there isn't any shackles or limits put on us for sure. Um, how, how early were you when you, when you started drinking? Um, so the first time I ever tried alcohol. I remember I was like eight. The first time um, I got drunk was with uh, friends at um, right before a football game, a Buchanan football game. It's a it's a high school here. Um, that was in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. So I was like thirteen or fourteen. Um, and then the third time I drank was at a party and I was actually slipped something in my drink and the older brother at the party who bought our, our alcohol, he, him and his friends ended up raping me. So I was only 15 and, um, I was, I was 14 or 15. I was around, I was my freshman year. And, you know, after that, um, my drinking just, it just exploded. I, you know, rumors were started and people said things and, um, I just, I, you know, to go from like this perfectionist athlete to like, you know, people calling you a slut and, you know, all these things you just like, I, everything just crumbled, you know, the foundation, the poor foundation I was standing on crumbled. And, um, I just, I went full blown, like alcoholic drinking. Um, and I, and I, you know, blamed myself for that. I told myself, well, if you hadn't have been drinking, that wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And I internalized that and the shame, you know, I felt so much shame and I was so confused about what happened that I became very promiscuous because I was trying to understand like, did I really want something like that? Like, did I really put myself in that situation and something like that happened to me? Because to, to overcome like the trauma of that night, you know, there was a point where I came to, cause I couldn't really like move. And I remember being carried in the bathroom by one of them. And I looked, I could see myself in the mirror and I couldn't move. And they put me in the bathtub and they were like wash cleaning me off. And this is in a beautiful home in North Fresno across the street from Buchanan. It's not like the movies where you're in some like rundown house. I mean, it was the scariest moment of my life. And I just remember thinking like, I don't, are they going to like kill me? Are they going to beat me up? Like I was so scared. And I just, I have this vivid memory of like, just going into my body and just like pretending like I wasn't there. And while they washed me off, cause at that point, once the water had hit me, I knew like I was starting to come back. And so when the rumors started, you know, I tried to tell myself, I think to cope with the emotions of it at such a young age that like that, that I, uh, I tried to understand, like, did I really want this? And so my, some people, you know, some women, when they go through that are girls, they, um, they either 
go inside themselves and they don't act out and others like act out to try to understand it. And that was definitely me. Like I began acting out and did not care about my body, did not care what happened to me, didn't care who I slept with, what I did. And then once the drugs, you know, came into play, it was just bad fast. Yeah. Yeah. I just had that conversation with um, a young lady that, uh, I adore. She opened up about her experience and being raped. And she was asking about that with, with relationships. She's like, why is it that I love the red flags? And I went, okay, let's break it down. And we got back into her, her, her backstory. And eventually she finally opened up about that. And, and thank you for sharing that vulnerably. Um, it's going to help so many people to hopefully understand because it does occur. Those two things, we become sexually anorexic or we, we go overboard. Um, and, and, and I know I was overboard. They don't think that, you know, I know they men males are looked at a little bit different, but it was kind of like, well, this girl likes me. You know, I equated attention to, to caring and love and, and boy, it's far from it. Um, goodness. Well, and I, you know, so now you're in this situation, you're just looking to bury these feelings Right. The, the the paradigm has already been set for you. The, the the stigma is already there. The whole shame bubble is over you to not be able to share this. Uh, instead of being able to be open, I was a victim of this. You're now carrying it in on your heart that you did this. That this is your fault, which it's of course not. You know that now, but boy. So we're off to the races. Drugs start coming into play. Where do we where do we go from here? Yeah, so I'm I'm drinking, I'm I'm smoking, you know, a ton of weed and I'm at a party and girls are doing coke in the bathroom and I um at this point had latched on I had latched onto a group of guys that I grew up with and they made me feel safe. I my drinking, I be, I can't, I became scared of drinking in certain environments. So I was really particular with like where I drank. And it was usually only with like one of my very best friends. And he was always with me and he knew he was the first person I told about what happened to me. And him and I shared one night um, on the phone and he had shared an abuse he suffered. And I shared, I finally shared mine. And so I had this like friend that I was like, oh my God, I, I, he's going to protect me. And he did. And we would drink. And so I, we were at this party together at a really good friends of ours and girls were using cocaine and they were, and um, they invited me in the bathroom. And I was like, no, I, you know, I knew better. I was like, I don't want to do drugs like that. But then, um, you know, the guys were like, oh, you're scared. You won't do it. And I was like, you know, my pride, my ego. I was like, I'm not scared. Like, don't challenge me. And I went in and I used cocaine and that, you know, started my 10, 10 year addiction with stimulants. Um, I used, and I immediately, like, I immediately knew I was addicted when I used it. All of my problems went away you know, the shame, the fear, what will people think the perfectionism? It was like, it was like the most freeing feeling I had felt up into that point and with where I was at. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was like immediate, like I was using every weekend, then every week that I was using before cheer, like I would use and go cheer at a football game. And it was just, out of control. And I only used for four months. And then I, I was at school actually. And my Spanish teacher, I was really close with her and she pulled me outside and she was like, you came to school every day looking so beautiful. And now you're coming every day in pajamas. You don't fix your hair. You hardly talk to me. And she was like, what is going on? And she went to my cheer coaches and they had this like huge sit down with me. And at first I was like, um, I had lied. I was like, I'm being bullied because I didn't want them to know. Um, And the reality was that I was using. And so that night I went home 
after cheer and I sat down with my mom and I looked her in the eyes and I told her, I said, mom, I'm addicted to cocaine and I need help. Mm. And, um, my parents were very mad at me, like very, very mad and very ashamed. Um, and they were just, they were so mad at me. Um, and then they, shortly after that night, um, they, I went off to rehab. Wow. How old were you at the time? I was 16. Wow. That's a young age to say stop all, right? Yeah. It's uh, incredible, you know, when I look back, like, you know, we learn in AA that phenomenon of craving. Mm-hmm. I, I knew, like, I didn't know what craving was, but I, I just knew right away, like, I felt that shift in my brain. And I just remember thinking like, I have to have this like all the time. And it's insane because it felt like it solved problems for me. And my brain just wanted those problems solved all the time. And what starts out as like, oh, I'm having fun. This feels good. It gives me energy. You know, it, 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 it takes me out of my thoughts what starts out as like innocent, maybe relief. It just, it quickly, almost immediately turned to, I want this all the time over everything. Mm -hmm. I just recognized that so quickly. When you went into a rehab at 16, did they start working with you on trauma? Yes. So it's so cool. I found my writing that I had to do in there. Um, the, when I was looking for one of my books and some of the things, you know, I wrote about, so I came forward about the rape in there and, um, you know, we went through that process and, you know, things I wrote about were like, what is people pleasing, um, how to have boundaries, what to look for in a healthy relationship with a man. Um, I had to write letters to myself. Um, but yeah, my therapist, he was an amazing man. He was a war veteran and he would play Johnny cash in every single session I had with him. And they started just digging through all that trauma. And I didn't realize it till I got older, but I, I learned about trauma. So, so soon, you know, How was that coming then back home at that point? Because we kind of come from a generation. It's not that our folks didn't love us. I adore my parents, but there is a different level of emotional maturity. How was it coming then back home after treatment? And how long were you there? Uh, Just 30 days, 60, 90? I did 55 days. Okay. Um, And I came home. It was, it was pretty brutal. I mean, I'll be honest. Um, I had to do goodbye calls to like my friends, which was devastating because these friends were the friends that like helped my parents get me into treatment, you know, helped convince me to go. Um, But they, you know, my parents really felt like my friends were to blame for everything. Mm. And so I came home and I had, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a cell phone. I wasn't allowed to go back to school. I did like homeschool. I was only allowed to go to AA and like, I think, you know, one of my best friends in AA, that's still my friend at the time she was like 27 and I was, you know, 16. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I was like suffering when I got home and I would, you know, stay sober. I tried so hard to stay sober and I would get like three months and I would actually run away from home. Mm. And I would run away to my friends and my friends would actually like literally hide me out so that I could go out and get out and just be with people. And I would always end up using, you know, drugs. Um, But I think the, at that time, you know, in 2006, there was no like adolescent mental health, anything, Mm -mm. you know? not like there is now in Fresno. And so actually finding anyone my age that knew what trauma and what mental health was, was almost impossible. 
Absolutely. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. I graduated in 96 from high school and looking back at, at, at my group and, and I've had so many people, even my childhood friends, I'm talking elementary school that have reached out and, and been very supportive and loving about, about knocking doors down and parents and addicts in need. And, um, I'm amazed to now look back and then op- them open up to some level and go, wow, our whole group throughout for the vast majority had something going on that we hid so incredibly well. Right. No, yeah, it's true. It was like a silent suffering, like invisible suffering, you know? And I think I just remember being in AA meetings and I would literally be like, God, just send me one 16 year old that is even considering not drinking. And the other thing with that too is, When you go to rehab and you come out with, you know, having an addiction that young, you almost get this like label on your head that says I'm a high risk person. And even if you wanted to be friends with healthy kids, their parents were reluctant to allow you in their child's life. So it's like, it was like this double edged sword of, you know, I'm damned if I go this way and I'm damned if I, if I don't. And so, um, it was just so lonely, you know? Yeah. Which is the last thing we need as, as we know, and we'll talk about frequently. And I know you do is the the opposite of addiction. isn't sobriety, it's connectivity. And when that is pulled, it's like, forget it. You know, that's, that's the worst thing that could happen. Definitely. So how is it, how did we get to the point you said you continued for 10 years uh, um, off and on, but that, that we get that, that moment of clarity and, and really start to build a life for yourself? I mean, beautiful family, loving husband, you know, there is, there is a gr- good result here. And then, uh, you know, right. going into advocacy. So what was, that, what was that point? Where was that clarity that just enough was enough? Well, I definitely was like a progression of falling forward. Um, I did go to juvenile hall um, at at one point for six months um, and then, you know, got out and I got addicted to meth. So things um, got worse before they got better. Mm -hmm. Um, I got pregnant, you know, at 19 with my son. And that was when... um, you know, I started taking recovery serious. I got sober, um, went to AA and I was able to stay sober till I was 21. But then, um, like the true alcoholic I am at 21, I thought I could control my drinking because, um, in my mind, I was like, what teenager gets sober? I must not be an alcoholic. You know, <laughs> I, must I must be. So my 21st birthday, I went out with my parents, my family, and I, I drank and I tried to drink normally till I was 27. And, um, and when I was 24, uh, a trauma happened out, um, to one of my children and I was in my drinking normally phase. And what happened was, When that trauma happened, because I wasn't rooted in any kind of recovery, my immediate response was a relapse. I went and used drugs. And um, after, you know, going back and forth, trying to get sober again off of drugs and still trying to drink, um, you know, the shame was just building up. And I think I got to a place in my 20s where it was like, I could no longer ignore 
what I had been avoiding um, for many years. And I avoided everything in my 20s. Um, I tried, you know, I told myself because, you know, I went to school and I had become a phlebotomist and I was working at a children's hospital. You know, I told myself all these lies like, well, you're fine because you are successful. You are you know, doing the right thing somewhat. So I was just able to kind of ignore, you know, past traumas. And so when I was 27, you know, that shame, that shame and that fear and that guilt, it all piled up. And I, my depression, um, after the trauma had happened, had just gotten so bad that I, you know, I started believing the lies uh, that, you know, my kids would be better off without a mom like me. And I felt like I had become everything I said I was never going to be in my own kids' lives. And um, that shame built up and I, I attempted suicide. And, you know, I think what's really important for people to understand about depression is that when you're in that depression or, or addiction spiral, you're like my best thinking at that time was that people would be, be like my kids would genuinely be better off without a mom like me. And, you know, I know that the truth is that if I had gotten into recovery and done the right things, they would be fine with a mom like me. But I had, my depression had spiraled so out of control that I wasn't able to differentiate the truth from the false. And I couldn't tell the difference between what was a true thought and what was a healthy thought versus what was false. And I really, truly, in my heart believed when I, you know, when my experience with suicide was like, I just, I cracked all of a sudden, like it wasn't, I was definitely have showing signs and having suicidal thoughts, but when the actual night happened that I attempted, it was like, a, I, I, I just picture a stick breaking right in half. Like the weight on both sides got so heavy and I just cracked and I made that decision. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, that point for when I've shared and talked about that is that, yeah, I think you put it best is, is, is just a crack. And, and, you know, it's the, where we go from having the thought to having an actual plan. Right. You know, and it just, it, for whatever reason you write it out or it's in your head, it just seems like the most logical thing. And that's such a terrible and scary place to be. Yeah. Uh. It is. And I try to be very vigilant with the people around me. You know, I take it very, very serious. And I think um, unlearning this, the stigma, like it is, it is a selfish thing, right? Like people get left behind and, and the pain of that's left behind with those people. But I also now understand after living through it, that in that moment, when that person makes that decision, they're, they don't think it's selfish. Like we truly believe like we have ruined people's lives and we have not done our part. And in this weird, crazy, twisted way, we're just like, we're, we're going to help you by doing this. Yeah. And it's just so, I know it's hard for someone without depression to wrap their head around that. But I think when we can begin to approach people who truly are struggling with depression and suicide with that lens that like they believe this to be the best thing for the people around them. I think it changes the conversations we have with them and the way we talk to them when they're in that, that thinking. And I, my experience in dealing with suicidal people is when I almost like validate that they feel that way and I, and that I understand, but then like encourage and speak truth into them. I've watched people pull out of it and go into treatment and get help. And it's just been an incredible experience for, for really my higher power to use me in that way, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, you do serve amazing purpose. Just part of the reasons I love you. Uh, you said something else too. It's around the age of 26, 27, which of course, when our brain comes to maturation. And for me, I found that that was one of the traumas. I could not bury them anymore because I was a late bloomer. I didn't really get off to the races till about 26, 27. Um, you know, so it's such an interesting thing. And I'm glad you shared that, that hopefully people will pick up on is, you know, if it's a younger person listening or this is shared with them, or you have someone that you love that's going through this, understand there's going to become a point. A lot of this is going to become to maturation and it's time to be vigilant with yourself and get after it for sure. Um, but I want to ask you about boundaries, boundaries, so important for everybody in life. How did you start establishing boundaries, not only with others, but with yourself? I think what I've learned about boundaries is number one, understanding them. Um, if you, if you grew up in an environment where having boundaries didn't serve the people around you, whether you grew up in an alcoholic home or maybe a home with people who struggle as a child, you learn this idea that boundaries are like mean, right? Like Mm -hmm. that I mean, if I set a boundary with you. And so I think for me, I've had to unlearn what it means to make a boundary and, and reframe it and know that when I'm making a boundary, it's, it's my way of loving myself in a healthy way. And so, um, one thing I, I struggled with was that I was such a people pleaser um, that I wouldn't set boundaries and then the boundaries would get crossed and I would get mad at someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I learned like, well, that's not really, you know, fair for lack of a better term, because I never set that boundary. Um, so that person didn't know um, that they were crossing anything. And so, you know, overcoming people pleasing, it was difficult for me because I had to learn that setting boundaries and then losing someone, you know, it's, it's almost like God's protection, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I set a boundary and I lose someone, then, you know, that's actually a good thing for me. Um, so just learning to set boundaries and being okay with possibly people not, not being okay with them, Um, And I think also too, like I had to learn how to set boundaries in a loving and tolerant way. Um, Cause I think, you know, for me growing up boundaries look like, you know, fuck off. (laughs) I was like, I'm not going to set it. You're going to pass it. And then I'm going to tell you to fuck off. Like, and so I think it's like, for me, just, just learning how to, in a loving, tolerant way, say like, that's not good for me. I don't agree. Um, so it definitely is for me, starting boundaries, setting boundaries started small. Um, and then there were big ones. Like I had to not have contact with certain people in my family for a long time until I had done the internal work to heal where I could be around them and, and have those healthy boundaries and, know how to walk away. My therapist explained boundaries like a gate and it's, it has, it's not in the ground. Like you hold the gate and sometimes you hold the gate up and sometimes you hold it higher and sometimes you put it down, but you set the boundaries, especially with family, you know, how situational, like I might come over, you know, say to a family member's house who drinks a lot and that day they maybe aren't drinking. So my boundary might look different that Mm. day. But if I go to a family member's house and I can see that there's been active drinking all day and they're not in a good place, well, that boundary is going to look different that day. And so I think, um, you know, that's another thing is like not having necessarily a black and white thinking with boundaries, which I could tend to get fall into. It's just understanding like, these may change and they, they may morph, especially as I grow too. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, that's still one of the key areas for me as a people pleaser. You know, boundaries were a tough thing, and then I would, like you said, I would go into the victim mode. And it's right. once once I started to really do the work, it's like, no, asshole, it's your fault. You didn't, you know. And it's simple as certain situations, like you said, just going no, period. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's it. It's like that's a statement. That's enough. Yeah. Now that's enough. Or yeah, I'm not going to do that. Or yeah, or that doesn't work for me. I would yeah. always give like these insane explanations and it's like, why don't do that? Like, <laughs> I'm an over, why? I'm a big over explainer. So I know yeah. exactly <laughs> what you mean. Uh, if this isn't too sensitive an area, but I find value in it because I had to work on this, but um, you know, I didn't go through the same scenario as you. Um, but establishing healthy sexuality, you know, now married, loving husband, beautiful family. Um, can you touch on a little bit of the work there without getting too personal? I don't want to go too much, but just in some of the important areas that maybe you do share with others. Yeah, no, definitely. So I started that work young. So what that looked like for me, especially when I got home from rehab as a teenager, I did not have sex like at all in early recovery. Um, you know, I think I went like two years maybe where I, um, didn't. And I think I had to like actually feel my fear of men, mm. which it's so insane because I was promiscuous, but I actually feared men. And once I like allowed myself to acknowledge that that I was literally afraid of men. Um, it, it made making that boundary easier, hmm. you know? Um, I think I learned too, and, and getting sober young was that I drank and nine times out of 10 was drunk if I slept with a man, um, because I had to be. And so doing the work, especially as an, as a, as a married woman around like, being intimate, sober and being safe. Um, so, you know, I had my son, um, and I had gone a couple of years, you know, not having sex. And then I got pregnant with my son and then, um, my husband, I'm now married to, um, I've actually known him since I was 15. Um, and he knew me before my addiction. So he knew like he knew what everyone said about me. He was there. And so it was really easy for me when we started dating to be like, this is actually what happened. Mm -hmm. And this is why I behaved that way. And, and so I think just having that foundation was really like, it just made it easier, you know, for him to have compassion. And, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's really important for people in recovery is to really just have like a, a sexual sobriety. Agreed. Yeah. I've uh, definitely a couple of men like, yeah, a year, like everything. I'm like, yep. No women, no masturbation, no pornography, because I'm willing yeah. to bet if you're turning to pornography a lot, there's some other underlying issues. You've got to uncover all this stuff and it's tough and yeah, yeah. sure. It sucks, but you know, it's part of this path of mastery of self. I don't know how else to put it. You know, no one's going to do the work for us. Right. And you, and when, if you're, if you struggle with like sexual trauma and you continue to, to have sex, like it's almost like a drug, like you're actually avoiding doing the work by, by continuing to put yourself in that situation. And what I learned too about taking that time away and, um, doing that work was when I reached those milestones of like a year or two years, I, I, I felt incredibly like whole mm -hmm. and I learned to love myself and I learned how to say like going into, you know, a marriage, like this is what I'm willing to do and what I'm willing not to do. And I'm just really thankful for my husband because he really is so supportive of like those boundaries with me. And he really knows like, you know, there's times like 
I'll cry and I'm so emotional and he's just so like supportive and he just knows like that, that I'm doing the work to heal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love hearing that. That's, that's beautiful. And, and you know, and what you're sharing is that importance of communication, honest, open communication and, uh, and owning our feelings too, not, not putting it off on someone else. Uh, And you said the ultimate beautiful thing, no fulfillment externally. This is an inside job. Ah. <laughs> you know, uh, I adore you, my friend. Uh, tell me about the, the butterfly inside. What are you doing with that? Uh, so the butterfly inside is, it's really just a community um, service, like ministry I do. I, um, I created it um, after my suicide attempt. Um, I had a brain injury and um, uncovered, I had a brain bleed technically, and I uncovered through that healing process um, that I had suffered concussions as an athlete that contributed to mental health. So I created, um, when I thought about my mental health journey and my addiction and all the things I had overcome, I, um, it, you know, the butterfly inside came to me and TBI is the butterfly inside, but it also stands for traumatic brain injury. And a traumatic brain injury is a concussion. And I, I really, um, it just was on my heart to create a platform to, for women specifically, you know, I, I don't know of a lot of women and, and specifically in my community who have come out to be like, Hey, me too, especially moms, right. Cause of that stigma. Um, so I created this platform as a place to be a voice for women and moms in recovery from anything, mental health, trauma, addiction. And so I, um, I do interventions. I do crisis calls for adolescent women or adolescent girls and women. Um, I speak and just bring awareness to all these topics from a female point of view in our community. Um, and it's, it's just been such a gift uh, to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get to our fun random questions and leave you with the final thought, if uh, people want to find out more about you, get a hold of you, uh, inquire on all you're doing, reach out, how can they do that? Yeah, so they can go to my website. It's thebutterflyinside.com. Um, it's the easiest way to find me. And then also, you know, social media. You can search the butterfly inside, or my handle is is Kels Iggy. <laughs> um, my last name's so hard to say. Um, but yeah, for sure, the butterflyinside.com. You can get everything, all the information there. Awesome. And I'll make sure to put those links in the podcast description for, for if anyone wants to uh, reach out to Kelsey. All right. This is where we have some fun, some fun random questions. Uh, just cause uh, you know, gosh, we've known each other a few years now. Um, this would be intriguing. You, you let's say a movie is going to be made about your life. Who would you want to play you adult actress? Oh man. That's a really good question. Um, I don't know her name, but the lady, um, who played Harley Quinn, in the Joker, what is her name? Margot Robbie. Yes, I, she's that's the first person that came to my mind. Or like everyone says, I look like Amanda Bynes, but I know she's changed a lot over the years. But, <laughs> I, but yeah, that's who I think of. That'd be good. I was actually thinking uh, Millie Bobby Brown, you know, from Stranger oh, Things. Yeah. She, she would do a pretty good job, I would think. Pretty good. Um, you are stranded on a deserted island. You have a movie with you and one music artist, like a greatest hits. Uh, what would those be? Hmm. Okay. Well, let me think about this. A movie and okay. Definitely a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. He's my favorite actor. Probably like inception would, what I would, would be what I want to bring. And then a greatest hits. Probably Queen. 
Yeah, right on. I love <laughs> it. That's awesome. Uh, you uh, somehow miraculously end up with one superpower. What superpower would you want? Um, reading people's minds. That is the one that scares me the most. Why? I think because if you can read people's minds, you can do all kinds of things. Doesn't that scare you, though, a little bit? And I because I know you're such a loving person and, and being around you and you're, you're just always go, 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 love, love, love and doing things just just because it's what you feel you should do. But for me, it scares me because I'm afraid I'd walk by the one person and it's like I would hear the thing that unfortunately they're in that negative space and they're pondering. I think it would make me feel safer because I feel like if I was in a situation I could read someone's mind I would be like oh, okay like they're fine like go on you know what I mean? <laughs> uh last random question you could have dinner with uh, any one person uh living or not could be anyone in the world who would it be oh my gosh these questions um Martin Luther King huh why I have always, so his, I have a dream speech. Like I remember hearing that in seventh grade and it was just like a really huge moment for me. And, um, I just, he's incredibly inspiring to me and I love his work and I just would love to sit down with him and hear what it was like to, advocate and walk through and watch all the things he did and still just have so much love and faith. Yeah. I had a, a conversation with one of my best friends about if, if Martin Luther did for whatever reason, he could kind of see the world and ask someone, so how did my work pan out? Well, some of it good, some of <laughs> yeah. it, they really fucked up, twisted it and used it in the way that you absolutely did not want to happen, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, yes, I agree. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful person. Um, all right. The floor is yours. Anything you want to lend to anyone that's, uh, struggling with mental health addiction issues, maybe a loved one is whatever it is, what can you lend? Yeah, I think, you know, what I just want people to know is that, there are places you can go and people you can talk to if you're struggling and especially like moms, um, if you're struggling or your children are struggling, you know, I just want you to know that you aren't a bad mom because you have been through trauma or you struggle with your mental health. Um, you, uh, you're not alone, you know, and there is help available and there are other moms like you who will understand and love you through it. And I think, um, you know, just, just for you to know that there is a place and you do belong. And once you overcome and face all these things, your life is going to change in ways that you just could never imagine. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the race for autism, race to end the stigma, and race to be drug free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit carlosvierafoundation.org today. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.
Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.